0: I want to ask the rest of you to do a little pretending as we get ready to study God's Word together. Pretend for a moment or two that you overhear a group of people talking about you. And they are saying things about you that are very clear, understandable, and some of them may or may not be true. So here's what you overhear other people saying about you. They're saying these specific things. They say that you love dogs and not cats. They say that you have a master's degree from Mississippi University. They say that you despise any and all sorts of seafood. They say that your lifelong dream has been to be in a rock band. They say that you are a lifelong Democrat that you're a huge college football fan and a big supporter of the ballet. That's you. Believe it or not, that is a description of you. And by that time, as you're listening over the cubicle or through the door or the paper-thin wall or wherever it might be, as they're discussing you and they're saying those things are true about you, what are you itching to do? What are are you compelled to do? You're, You're compelled to weigh in because I doubt every one of those things is true about anybody. Some of those things would be true of me; others wouldn't be true of me. Maybe none of them were true of you, but maybe maybe one or two. I'm compelled. I want to go and set the record straight and say, actually, I love seafood. Of most kinds. I I love seafood. I love seafood so much, I love sushi. You know? And I've never even been to Mississippi, let alone gone to the University of Mississippi. I mean, I would want to set the record straight, just like you would. But here's my question. If they really, truly believe those things about you, earnestly believe those things are true about you, what business, what right would you have to tell them that any or all of those things weren't true about you. If they were sincere, they really believed it, genuinely believed it, who are you to tell them that they're not right? To tell them about the real you? Well, you're you. (laughs) You're a real person. You're not a fictional character. And so you would want to inform them of reality because you, uh, you really do love seafood or you don't love seafood. You really are a dog person or a cat person or a fish person or none. I mean, you, you really could speak to the matter objectively and about reality. And this brings us to the topic of Jesus. Luke chapter 13, we're learning about the historic Jesus. That Jesus who, oh yes, means a lot of different things to a lot of different people in one sense. And in one sense, that's really good. In that, he's personal. And, and, and we're, we're all different. And so he relates to us in that sense in different ways, personally. We want to preserve that. Because he is relational. But we have to be really careful that we don't keep in mind that he is who he is also. That he is A historic person who walked the earth, who said certain things and didn't say other things. And did certain things and didn't do other things. And he spoke about who he really is and who he isn't. And it's helpful for us to remember that sometimes. Just like you would want to set the record straight about who you are because you're a real person. Jesus is a real person and we can really know who he is. And that might mean some, some, some altering of what we think if it's not in line with reality. And so this morning what we're going to do is consider the historic Jesus. And as we do so, we're going to look at the historical record and we're going to see some important things about Jesus that we sometimes forget. So if you'd like an outline this morning, I have an outline I'm going to follow. Five particulars about the historical Jesus that we sometimes forget. Five particulars about the historical Jesus that we sometimes forget. Luke chapter 13, verses 31 to 35. And as we do so, yes, we're talking about history. Yes, history can be boring. Yes, history can be unrelated to us. But this won't be boring. And... It will be related to us. It will be related to us. So number one, let's jump right in. The first particular about the historical Jesus that we can sometimes forget is number one, Jesus was opposed. Jesus was opposed. He drew big crowds. He enjoyed great popularity at times. He taught many people many things and did many things that people loved and embraced and were thankful for. All that's true. But we sometimes forget that the historic Jesus was also opposed. There were people who didn't like Him. They didn't like what He said. And we have to remember that's, that's the real Jesus. That's the real Jesus. Look at verse 31 with me, if you would, where it says, At that very hour, that would be that very hour when he had been saying, I'm the way. At that very hour when he was saying, there's a broad way, and many people are on that way, and there's a narrow door that's closing, and that's me. At the very hour when he was teaching those things, because that's earlier that we saw last time in Luke 13, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Herod is opposed to you. And again, to those of you who read your Bible regularly, this is not surprising. But it is surprising, would be surprising to many people, because we've, we've come up with this idea of Jesus that, that everybody likes him. No one ever opposes him. And here we have a good historic example of someone opposing him so intensely that he wants to kill him. Now, I want to ask you, why on earth would anyone oppose Jesus? Why would somebody oppose Jesus? The historic Jesus, the true Jesus. Well, even in our passage, we can start answering that question. Maybe the not so obvious is something I've already alluded to. They oppose him because of his exclusivity. Just like people don't like the exclusivity of Jesus in our day, we have to remember that we're not the first pluralistic culture ever to arrive. They were super pluralistic. And at that very hour, the very hour when Jesus was saying, I am the way, the very hour when he was saying there's a broad way that leads to destruction, and then there's a narrow door, the narrow closing door that leads to the kingdom, that leads to salvation, and he's really pointing to himself, at that very hour there's opposition. Well, yeah. We would expect opposition because he's, he's affirming his own exclusivity, that he's the way, as he said on other occasions. So we should remember that. His authority also brings opposition. That's where Herod really comes to light here. His authority as Messiah, Herod wants to kill you. Think about if Jesus is Messiah, he's the king, he's the anointed one, he's the The king sent from God, the one who has ultimate authority. And Herod, as the ruler, has authority. And if we have ultimate authority facing relative authority, there's going to be a problem. And so Herod is threatened. Herod doesn't want his authority to go away by a greater authority. So there's opposition. He doesn't want his authority being rocked. There's also opposition, even in our verse, even though it doesn't explicitly say so, because of opposition to his righteousness. His righteousness. And the context that we would have in the new testament as well as the old testament righteousness has to do with with law keeping keeping god's law remember the pharisees are involved here and the pharisees at least externally were 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 the ultimate people in law keeping we are righteous they want to establish their own righteousness we are law keepers You just watch us and we will obey the law of God. And if you want to know how to be right with God, you want to be acceptable before God, you follow us because we know how to keep the law. We're righteous. We're law keepers. Jesus would be offensive to them. They would be opposed to Jesus for his righteousness because Jesus all along has been saying things like, I didn't come to get rid of the law. I came to fulfill the law. Oh, He's the righteous one. As the Apostle Paul would say elsewhere, He's the just. He's the righteous. For the unrighteous. Oh, that's offensive. That's offensive. If I'm a Pharisee, if Jesus is the only righteous and He is our righteousness, He is our lawkeeper, that means I'm not actually inherently righteous. I'm not actually a lawkeeper. And so I don't like this Jesus at all. Jesus who said uh, He's here to fulfill all righteousness. What about the fact that I'm fulfilling righteousness? Pharisees oppose Jesus because of that. And sometimes we oppose Jesus because there's that, that, that little Pharisee living inside of all of us. This says, I'm a good person. And God likes me. And God will accept me. Because I'm not as bad as other people. And, and we've got this kind of self-righteousness in the theological sense in us. And that might cause us to oppose Jesus too. Jesus who told people that their hearts were Sinful not righteous. We have to remember that the historic Jesus faced opposition. Isn't it interesting too, by the way, that the Pharisees seem to be Jesus' friends here? How strange is that? Jesus' arch rivals against Jesus, opposing Jesus. Oh, Jesus, we really need to help you. You need to flee the area. Not because we have any selfish selfish agendas or anything. We, we, We really like you so much that you should leave because Herod's trying to kill you. And by the way, at this point, we don't even know if Herod really is trying to kill him. It might be the Pharisees lying. It might be that he really is. We don't know. But the Pharisees had no warm spots in their heart for Jesus. They opposed Jesus. So whether it's true or not, they're saying, you should leave now. Let's get rid of this guy. They're offended. Jesus is opposed by these kinds of individuals, just like he might be opposed by us sometimes. But here's the thing. We're going to see that we want Jesus to be the historic Jesus. We, we want Him, even if it means He's going to be opposed. Because we're going to see that He's going to be the Savior. He really is going to provide righteousness. He really is going to be the mediator. He really is going to be the effective high priest. And so while it might rub our sensibilities the wrong way along the line, and so we'll come up with a fanciful, fictitious Jesus to kind of fit our own preconceived ideas, self-imposed kind of thing, we want him to be the real historic Jesus because the real historic Jesus is a saving Jesus. He might not be the politically correct Jesus, but he's the one who provides salvation. Let's move on now to a second. The particular the second particular about the historic Jesus. The second particular about the historic Jesus is Jesus was on mission. Jesus was on mission amid amid the opposition. Jesus was on mission amid the opposition. Let me set it up a little bit before we get to verse 32. The folklore Jesus, if we can call him that, or the imagination Jesus, when he faces opposition, he just changes. The Jesus in our own imagination, the folklore Jesus, the Jesus of our imagination, if he is opposed, he's just going to change so that people will be happy with him. So Jesus says something that we don't like, we just recreate Jesus. He changes in effect, and, and then He's more palatable, and then He's more acceptable. Here, the historic Jesus is on mission no matter what. Even amidst opposition, He's not going to change. And that becomes important for us to be able to see. Let me let me make up something here put these words in Jesus' mouth that aren't true. This is what the folklore Jesus would say, I imagine. Okay, here's, he says he's gonna do this, he says he's gonna to go to the cross, he says he's gonna provide perfect righteousness, he says he's the narrow way, and there's opposition. So the folklore Jesus says something like this. What? Herod doesn't like me? Doesn't he know that I came to earth to help him to fulfill his dreams? If there is something I've said or something that I've done, Lord knows I can change. I can make it up to him. I think that's what the folklore Jesus would say. The palatable, shapeable, to me, Jesus is Jesus. He wouldn't stay on task, on target, on mission. He would change. And those of you who are Christians know that you don't want him to change, even if it's going to create ripples in the water in the short run. Notice what it really does say in verse 32. And he, Jesus, said to them, very different from folklore Jesus, He said to them, go and tell that fox, that cunning, conniving man, Herod, go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course." How about that? He doesn't give him the soft sell, I'll be whoever he wants me to be. He opposes him because he's going to stay on task. He's going to stay on mission. I'll go back and tell him this. I'm going to do this the next day and this the next day, which is what I've been doing. These are things that prove I'm the Messiah. I'm not going to stop doing things that prove I'm the Messiah. And then on the third day, I'm going to do, again, what I do. That's my message to him. I'm staying on task, on mission, even amidst opposition. And you say, that's really hard-headed. That's really, you know, that's, that, 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 that might mean Herod doesn't believe in him. You know, as Christians, we want him to stay on target, on task, because of what that's going to mean, what it's going to be. It's going to be redemptive, as we will see. It's crucial. Isn't it interesting? I don't know if you noticed this or not, but um, Jesus is not speaking literally when he says, I cast out demons, perform cures today and tomorrow and the next day, the third day I finish my course. He's not finishing his course three days after this. His point is not to be taken literally. It was, it's literal in this sense. I'm going to do it tomorrow. I'm going to do it the next day and I'm going to do it the next day and then I'll be done. But chronologically, there's a whole lot of time left. I mean, he's not being crucified here. Three days later, risen from the dead. He's just saying, I'm going to follow my my mission no matter what. And yet, there seems to be this nuance of something for the rest of us who know something more about what's going to go on because we do know about a different kind of third day. When he is going to be raised from the dead when his work will be complete and accomplished, I like these little 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 previews these little gems, these little nuances that we can see that'll be tied to the finishing of his course by the way, wh- what is this super important mission that 's going to be finished? He uses that loaded word that crucial critical word complete finish one that's used throughout the bible one that's used throughout his ministry let me just give you a sampling luke 12:50 i have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished until it is finished until it is done and he's not we've seen before he's not talking about his actual baptism he's using it metaphorically to describe his 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 death his work, until it is accomplished, until my mission is done, that's what's going to happen. And it's going to have everything to do with His cross. Luke twenty-two thirty-seven, familiar familiar to, to many of you. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, that He was numbered with the transgressors. It's talking about His crucifixion. For what is written about me has its fulfillment, its completion, its fulfillment. Same word. John 19:30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, or it is fulfilled, or it is accomplished. It's the same reality. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Go back and tell Herod, I will do what I've been doing, and I will do what I've been doing until my mission is accomplished. And on one level, we could say that was really harsh. He resorted to name calling. That's just not the Jesus I believe in. It's the Jesus I believe in. The Jesus of history who would do nothing to become off mission because he is going to provide salvation. And so what may be offensive in the short run is key and vital in the long run. And we forget that sometimes. He's on course. He's on mission. A mission that, by the way, started when? Even before Bethlehem. A mission that started, according to Ephesians chapter 1, before the foundation of the world. It's no wonder that that mission would be one that wouldn't be thwarted by Herod, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, or any, anybody else. It's the plan of redemption. It's awesome. And once again, we're reading this and we're reading the historical account. It's going on and it would have been heated and it would have been uh, intense. We're, we're living way on the other side of it saying, I'm so thankful as a Christian that Jesus was resolved to do what He did. What a loving Savior. What a gracious Savior that He would do this so that we might experience reconciliation. You see, if we try to make Jesus some one or something that He isn't in the name of the all-amazing, all-powerful, all-acceptable virtue of niceness as we define it, He's not on mission to be Redeemer. And that's the ultimate. It's no wonder he sticks to the plan. The third day kind of plan that we love. Number three. The particular about the historic Jesus that we can sometimes forget is Jesus was on mission to die. Jesus was on mission to die. Very similar. But look at verse 33. Nevertheless. So there's a, there's a kind of contrast. Uh, Herod can't touch me. He can't harm me. I'm going to do what I've committed to do no matter what according to eternal decree nevertheless i must go part of this accomplishing i must go on my way today and tomorrow and the following for it cannot be that the prophet should perish away from jerusalem and the word i want you to really notice at least right now well multiple words like must but even the but specifically the word perish Herod is not going to mess up my plans. Neither are you Pharisees by trying to get rid of me. But make no mistake about it, there is going to be a perishing. Herod won't murder me. Herod won't stop me. But I am going to accomplish this, and yes, there will be a perishing. There's a huge difference. He's on mission, and he's on mission to die, even though certain people try to talk him out of it. Luke chapter 9 verse 51 is back where we heard Jesus heard it said of Jesus he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's right. He's resolved to stay on task on mission to set his face to go toward Jerusalem and we know why he's going to Jerusalem. He's going there to perish. He's going there to die. He's going there because he loves sinners like us so much that he's going to give himself up for us sometimes we forget he is on mission on task resolvedly so to perish now hopefully you notice the the ironic kind of insult if you didn't I'll point it out to you in verse 33 for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem pretty strange He's talking to Jewish people. I mean, prophets. Wh- wh- where, where do prophets go? Prophets go to the ungodly. And who opposes God's true prophets? The ungodly oppose God's true prophets. You know, so send the prophets to Assyria. Uh send the prophets to to, to Babylon. Send the prophets somewhere. The insult and irony is Through a long history of prophets, God has been sending prophets to His own people, people who say they believe the Bible is true, people who say they believe in the one true God and want to offer Him true worship, and there's a long history of God sending prophets to them, not just to Israel, and He he really drives it home to the capital city of Jerusalem of all places, and there's a long history of the people of God killing the prophets of God. Talk about No place for self-righteousness. Pharisaical law-keeping. Look at us. No, we need external righteousness that would come from somewhere else. Jesus, too, like the long line of prophets, is going to perish in Jerusalem. Just showing them their sin. And by the way, that's what happens when we see Jesus, we forget this, Jesus resolve His commitment to stay on mission to the point of perishing whether we realize it or not underlying that is an emphasis on our sin in so many ways the Messiah of all people has no business dying in Jerusalem what on earth would lead to Messiah dying in Jerusalem a long history of sinful human beings even professing people of God killing the prophets of God and they'll do it to Jesus too Wow, oh, we forget this. It's convenient to forget it because I don't want to acknowledge that I'm not inherently a good person. I like self-righteousness. Just as they did. He's going to stay on mission. He's going to stay on mission to die because that's part of the plan. It's godless for them to do it to him, but it's part of God's perfect plan. Luke Luke twenty two twenty two. Uh, the Son of Man goes at his, as it has been determined. This is how it's going to be. That's that's on mission kind of thing. Acts chapter 2 verse 22 is rather interesting because you've got the human responsibility. and You also have the divine plan that it's part of the mission. Luke chapter 2 verse 22 reads this. Listen carefully. Men of Israel, Peter says in his sermon. Men of Israel, not Egyptians. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan, purpose. And foreknowledge of God, you crucified. Men of Israel, you did this so it's a complex reality, but it's a great reality. It's part of the mission to have this happen. But as it happens, it shows the sinfulness of the human beings who do it. We forget this. We forget that Jesus is on mission and he's on mission to die. But that thing that shows us our sin is also the very thing that shows us how great it is he was on mission to die. Ephesians chapter 5, he gave himself up for us. He loves us enough to not be distracted, to not be dissuaded, to not listen to people who say, don't go. You don't need to go. Well, he most certainly does need to go. And his death was effective. And by the way, now we're getting a little bit better picture, I hope, of why he would say, strive to enter through the narrow door and be talking about himself. The the, the broad road, the broad door, if you will, the broad gate, that leads to destruction. Strive to come through me. Well, that makes all the sense in the world, because he's the one who's going to stay on mission, and he's the one who's going to go and make atonement for sin. Oh, this is loving for him to say, strive, come through me. And now, having heard about Jerusalem in verse 33, there's a, there's a shift to talking to individuals, to talking to the nation. And we come to number four, the fourth particular, about the historical Jesus that we can sometimes forget. Jesus was the ultimate prophet. Jesus was the ultimate prophet. Verse 34 says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Addressing the nation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Please notice two things. He's talking about the prophets and their demise that they've met by the professing people of God. But please also notice, he's not only speaking about the prophets, like Jeremiah, he's speaking as a prophet. He's very much in in prophetic stance. What do prophets do? I loved what one person said. They put it so succinctly and so helpfully. Prophets spoke the truth, and they summon the people to face reality as God defines it. Super helpful. Prophets spoke the truth, and they summon the people to face reality as God defines it. So Jesus is talking about the prophets, but He's saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, just like a prophet would do. And He's going to call for their repentance. He's going to call for them to see Him for who he really is. They have a view of Messiah. They have a view of Christ. And he's saying to them, like a prophet would, you need to see the truth as God would define the truth, not as you would define the truth. So prophets do. And prophets show guiltiness so that people can see that they're guilty so that they can repent. Jesus is the ultimate truth speaker, truth interpreter, repentance caller. Verse 34 then says, How often would I have gathered your children? Addressing the nation, that's what's said. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. The imagery is is of what? Protection, safety, comfort, security. God is compassionate. He is long-suffering, offering, offering. care and concern. And then it says in verse 35, Behold, your house is forsaken. Behold, your house is forsaken. Oh, we forget. We definitely forget that that Jesus was the ultimate prophet. We totally forget that Jesus said things like this. Here's how we typically remember things with revisionist history. We typically think... Prophets, bad attitudes, grumpy, you know, they needed some kind of behavioral modification, behavioral modifying medicine or, you know, something. They just apparently weren't on their meds that day kind of thing. I mean, talk, it's just wrath, judgment. You guys don't understand the truth. You need to repent. That's how we think of prophets. And revisionist history then says it's so good that Jesus came and he didn't come as a prophet. So we've got grumpy, and now we've got nice. What's interesting is what Jeremiah warned of in prophet mode. Here we have Jesus not warning, he's actually pronouncing that this is it. And then that sense the warning's over when he says, Your house is forsaken. If anything, Jesus isn't lesser than the prophets, he's the ultimate prophet and the one who has the authority to be able to do those things. Yes, we know he's more than a prophet, but we sometimes forget that he's not less than a prophet. Speaking the truth of God forcefully about who the people are and their sin and their rejection and what the consequences would be, and you say, well, that's not what it means to us. Let me as a prophet define reality for you. Well, to us, we're okay with God. We, we, we do a lot of external things. We think everything's fine. And this is who Christ is to us. Let me redefine reality for you is what a prophet does. Now, right about now, you're going, yikes. Just hang in there. Remember, we want Jesus to be the real Jesus because the real Jesus is the one who goes to the cross and provides redemption and atonement and forgiveness and reconciliation. He's different than the folklore Jesus that's less than a prophet. We want Him to be this Jesus. To speak of these things. At least then we know there's a problem. If He lied to Israel about their spiritual state, it's bad enough that He's lying. And secondarily, they think everything is fine and dandy. How awful, how awful it is to practice such revisionist history. How unethical. At least this way they know. At least this way they know. They're not experiencing safety or security or, or peacefulness. Jesus is so kind for being a strong prophet. Number five, let's end on this. The particular about the historical Jesus that we can sometimes forget they did in their time and we do in our time. And that's that Jesus was the Messiah who must be seen as such. Jesus was the Messiah who must be seen as such. Remember those of you who are new to the Bible, the New Testament word Christ is the same as the Old Testament word Messiah. The promised Messiah, the promised King is none other than the Christ. He must be seen as such. Verse 35 goes on to say, And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What's that mean? Psalm 118 commonly understood in the first century and before as a messianic psalm. And when you're waiting for Messiah, the Deliverer, the King, the Christ, when you're anticipating, what will you sing? What will you pray? What will you recite? You will sing and recite and and rehearse and meditate on Psalm 119, which says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Oh, we're longing for redemption. We're longing for a savior. We're longing for Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's march in Jerusalem. Let's go up the stairs. The Psalms of Ascent. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who, it's it's all waiting for Christ. See, they believe the Bible. They believed in a Christ. But when they met him and saw him, the historic Jesus, the genuine Jesus, they said, he's not it. And Jesus says, until you say about me, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, what he's saying, it's not complicated. Until you see me as Messiah, you're lost and without hope. He's talking to a nation. It would apply to individuals. you got to trade in your Jesus for the real historic Jesus, the genuine Jesus. That's where it is. Now, I'm fully aware that This isn't where we are by and large. And you might be saying, "Well, this is this kind of interesting, but you know the Jesus you're describing is not the Jesus I believe in. If that's where you're coming from, I just want you to know that this is, this is a perfect passage for you. Perfect. Here's why. Because in so many ways, you're just like the original audience. Because they weren't atheists. They were people who said they believed in a Christ. A Messiah. The problem is that when they met the historic Christ, the genuine one, and it didn't match their own perspective... they then didn't listen to the prophet who speaks the truth of God and explains and defines it. And so you're, you're, you're in the right place. It's perfect. You've got to know. This might not be the Jesus you believe in. But revisionist history, because we're talking about a historical figure, is unethical. Here's the good news. He's kind, gracious, merciful, and he uses even that little word like until. How kind that it's not, you're smoked forever. How good and kind is that he said this instead of saying, well, I know that this is true, but I'm never going to say about anything about it for fear that they might not think I'm nice. How kind and gracious and magnificent and merciful and wonderful for him to say, here's who I am doesn't match with who you say I'm going to be but here's who I am and until you connect the dots there's no safety for you so I'm not a prophet but Jesus is the ultimate prophet and so I want to at least echo those words to you and for those of you who are Christians isn't it great Jesus was not the moldable, pliable, I am whoever you want me to be and I'll do whatever it takes to make you happy, Messiah. Because if he were, there would be no cross, there would be no Calvary, there would be no redemption, there would be no salvation, there would be no fulfilling all righteousness. And here's the deal, and we would be hopeless. Read passages like this for multiple reasons but one reason to read a passage like this if you're already a Christian is to say I am so thankful for the steadfastness of my Savior's love that he was even willing to be ridiculed and to go against the cultural religious grain in order to make sure redemption is sure for me. Father, thank you for a great time in your word. Thank you for even shocking us sometimes uh, out of our cultural sensibilities to be able to be in touch with reality, the reality of Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Christ, the one who spoke, the one who acted, the one who was crucified, the one who was raised from the dead. What a great Savior he is. And as we leave here, help us to remember that our, our, our confidence shouldn't be in ourselves, but should be in him. And also allow us to leave with joy and excitement and enthusiasm that not only can we know what it means to have His righteousness, but we can also know what it means to speak well of Him to others. In Jesus' name, Amen.